thank you all so much for being here today. Uh, my name is Alex Bendixson. I am the Programs and Education Coordinator here at the Hirshhorn. And it's my pleasure to welcome you here for this Friday gallery talk with the curator of Salvatore Scarpita Traveler, Melissa Ho. Thanks, Alex. And thanks, everybody, for joining me today for this gallery talk. There has not been a museum exhibition dedicated to the work of Salvatore Scarpita in the United States in quite a number of years. And this is the first one ever on the East Coast. So it's a real pleasure and an honor to be presenting his work here at the Hirshhorn. Scarpita is truly a unique and fascinating figure in the story of post-war American art. Both his life and his career followed unusual paths. He was born in New York City in 1919, grew up in Los Angeles in Hollywood. His mother was an actress, his father was a sculptor. And it was because of his father, who was Italian born and educated, that Scarpita moved to Rome in 1936 at the age of 17 to study art. And he ends up spending more than 20 years there. So, as you can imagine, those years, 1936 to 1958, are very tumultuous ones in Europe, and he experiences fascism, the Second World War, firsthand. During the war, because he was an American citizen, living in an Axis country, he was arrested and interned for a period. Later, he was able to escape into the Apennine Mountains, which was a real stronghold for the Italian resistance, and he participated and um, aided the partisans during that period. So he basically spends about a year in hiding, um, living underground, living among other um, civilian enemy aliens like himself, as well as uh, escaped foreign POWs. Finally, in 1944, he's able to cross into the Allied-controlled part of Italy. And at that point, he um, joins the US Navy, he enlists, and he spends the rest of the war, about a year, working as a translator and as a monuments man. So after he's discharged from the Navy, um, he returns to Rome, and as I mentioned, he stays there until 1958, the end of that year. So it's in Rome where he really matures as an artist, where he has his first exhibitions, and where he has his first major artistic breakthrough, which is represented by the body of work in this gallery, um, and which he came to call the extramurals. And as an aside, I'll just say that it's because of this early history that Scarpita spent um, the early decades of his career in Italy, that even today he's more well-known and sort of recognized in that country than here in America. Um, now this work from the late 50s, the so-called extramurals, really establish a number of themes as well as techniques that you can follow through Scarpita's entire career. One is this very evident desire to endow his work with a greater and greater sense of physical and sensory immediacy. And he does that here by ripping up his paintings and using the support material, the, the canvas itself, um, a material that traditionally functions as neutral ground. It's not something that you're really meant to focus on, um, but Scarpita here treats it very sculpturally. He rips it, he soaks it in glue and resin, he shapes it, he rolls it, he wraps it. He also slices into it and allows you to look through. So in other words, he's altogether defying the conventions of the picture plane, and instead he's creating 
paintings, you know, for lack of a better word, that don't really stay politely within um, the frame, but move out into the viewer's space. And you can see in these very early small works that he uses slats of wood that um, are in an X formation to add more dimension to the pieces and have them push forward. In the later, more ambitious works, he's using wire armature um, and rather large pieces of metal, actually, to create the sense of force that's pushing forward from behind. So there is this sense of life beneath the surface. There's a sense of um, breathing. That was one way that he described them. The paintings at first glance might seem to be quite spontaneously created, especially with the ripping and the wrapping. But what's very interesting is when you examine them, it becomes very clear how carefully plotted out they were, how carefully edited they were. There's a seamlessness to the craft and the execution. They're actually, although it's all recognizable material, um, when you try to reconstruct in your head exactly what were the steps that led to a work like this one called Moby Dick, it's very hard to figure out. They're also surprisingly complex right on the surface. They're all more or less monochromatic, but there is color in these works. And the color at this time for Scarpita, he's creating it entirely with domestic substances, things like coffee, iodine, things that you'd find in the household. Uh, there's also a lot of grit on some of these. You can see where he's thrown dirt on the surface and it's settled into the resin. And you also have to remember that at this time, 1957, 1958, shaped canvas is not really an established concept. It's really several more years later before that term becomes very common. So Scarpita is really among a vanguard of artists, some of whom know each other, are aware of each other, some of them are not aware of what they're all doing, but they're all at this time pushing that boundary between painting and sculpture. And you'll see later in his career that Scarpita likewise pushes the boundary between what's sculpture and what's experience. So one of the ways he pushes that boundary is in his use of recognizably non-art materials, which is something that enters his work around this moment. Found objects like straps, you can see in this work in the center on that wall, bandages. There's a story that one of the first wrap paintings he made was made using the swaddling cloth from when his first daughter was an infant. So these are not neutral choices. Again, it's not about the ground going away and not being part of our interpretation of the work. He's deliberately choosing materials that have very strong connotations, very strong sort of emotional and personal associations and sort of convey their own meanings. Again, this is a step away from the illusionism of pictorial representation and this kind of embrace or exploration of the common ground between real life and art. And again, you'll see that over and over in Scarpita's work, this the desire to use the common physical object as a way of getting towards a metaphorical or poetic content. So at this time, the late 1950s, that's represented by this gallery we're standing in now, Scarpita meets uh, Leo Castelli, a legendary art dealer, who at that time had just opened his gallery in New York City. And Castelli meets Scarpita in Rome. 
offers to represent him and to help him return to America. And so he finally does. At the end of 58, he moves to New York City and he continues to work with Castelli for the next 40 years. So let's step into the next gallery and see what happens after Scarpita returns to America. So when Scarpita first comes to New York, he continues in a similar vein to what he had been creating in Rome. So take a look at the the works that are on the walls around us. These are works that I have been calling the car part paintings because they reference car racing and they incorporate car parts. Some are real, some are facsimiles. They're things like um, safety straps, uh, belting, tailpipes, tubing. And what's interesting is you see a real continuity with the earlier work, the extramurals. There's a shared vocabulary of ripping, wrapping, bandaging, um, a similar allusion to violence as well as to healing. And this is a very common dialectic in, in Scarpita's work. You often see in his art these two intertwining themes. On the one hand, risk and mortality, and on the other, survival and rebirth. Scarpita had spoken about those earlier monochromatic extramurals as that making them was a form of exorcism for him, um, a way of working through some of the experiences and the feelings that he had had from his um, time during the war. And there is something very human, and I think uh, the human body is very much felt in those, in those canvases. In some of them, the fabric has been so saturated with resin that it no longer reads as textile. It feels much more like skin or hide. So that connection to the body and perhaps the violation of the body, I think, is really clear in those works. And likewise, in the car part paintings, um, there are uh, there's imagery that alludes to sort of, you know, a bandaging of, of a body. Although the surfaces are quite different. The surface of a, of a work like this, he's, been, he's built it up with so much epoxy and resin and paint that it, it no longer reads as textile, but it also doesn't necessarily read as skin or flesh. It reads much more like the, the body of a car, like enameled metal. It's hard, again, I want to point out the sort of unique, um, self-invented uh, craft of what Scarpita does. These are really extraordinary to look at from reverse, which unfortunately we can't do in the exhibition. But when you try, again, when you try to figure out all the steps that went into making the, that appearance, it's very, um, it's very difficult to unwind. But the result is a painting. He's still working more or less with the basic materials of traditional painting. In fact, he's using very good um, painter's linen in these car part paintings, but it has the sort of heft and the materiality of, of metal. Again, like I said, this reference to a human mortality, the bandage areas, and it's, it's also worth mentioning that the very first car parts that Scarpita mentioned incorporated into his works were real ones. They were bits and pieces that he scavenged at a real racetrack after a fatal wreck. And he did talk about making these works as a way of trying to extend the lives of the drivers who died at the track. Now, that desire, that sort of wish fulfillment um, of wanting to extend the life of a racer to sort of perform a kind of resurrection, that eventually leads Scarpita to 
altogether abandon the idiom of painting and of abstraction and to take a great risk and move into this very radical kind of realism. And he decides to build full-scale race cars. And between 1964 and 1969, he makes six cars. And this car in front of us, uh, called Sal Krager, was the last of that group that he made. They're all made in this old-fashioned style of a 1930s sprint car. This is the kind of car that Scarpita saw race when he was a child in the 1930s. So partly, I think these works have to do with his memories, his childhood memories, his sort of fantasies from when he was a boy. As I mentioned earlier, Scarpita grew up in Los Angeles and he was absolutely obsessed with car racing as a child. He frequented a place called the Legion Ascot Speedway, which was not too far from where he lived. And it was a notoriously dangerous track. And sprint car racing, even today, although the cars have changed quite a bit and it's much safer than it was in the 1930s and 40s, it's still a fairly dangerous form of motor racing. Partly this is because it happens on a dirt track. And dirt tracks become extremely slippery and um, difficult to negotiate because their condition changes drastically over the course of one evening's worth of racing. They go very fast. That's why they're called sprint cars. They have one of the highest sort of speed to weight ratios in motor racing. And they have open wheels. So they're very easy to flip. If you hit something with your wheel in a sprint car, you're, you're probably going to be turning upside down. So as you can see, in these old-fashioned cars, there's virtually nothing protecting the driver. And there were lots of fatalities back in the 30s. But when Scarpita talked about his time as a boy visiting the track, he didn't focus on sort of he didn't have morbid memories. In fact, what he remembered were the driver's vitality and the joyfulness with which they pursued their sport. And I think that contradiction really captured his imagination that you could do something that was very risky and possibly was going to kill you, but that it also, um, that that was a way, that was a life, could be a life-affirming experience. I also want to mention that Scarpita did not think of these cars he did not think of this project as being one about restoring cars. He wasn't interested in the car as a technological accomplishment per se. He, was, he wasn't interested in making the car look sterile, brand new, perfect. He really wanted them to show some wear and tear. He wanted there to be dirt in the wheels. He wanted them to actually smell of alcohol and castor oil, which is the fuel that they ran on. And he said again and again that he wanted the cars to seem alive, to seem human. So he's absolutely relating them, just in the same way that the canvases sort of relate to the human body. He's relating the car to the animating human force that drives them. And he did sometimes describe these cars as, as suits of armor, as sort of um, clothing for, for a human body. Now, in the mid-1980s, he takes an even more audacious step, and he decides to get involved in racing cars competitively. And if we just move down here to look at Trevis race car, this is a vehicle that had a very interesting role in this. It started life as an actual functional race car. Scarpita bought it in 1985 from a driver named Greg O'Neill. And so this car is much more 
of a, of a ready-made in the Duchampian sense uh, than the earlier ones, which he's constructing basically by hand. But this is a functional item that he altered and chose to show, to recontextualize it in an art gallery. And his alteration consisted basically of that change of context and the paint job. And so if you look at the very colorful paint job here, it's actually a seamless mixture of what existed from the car's real competitive life, actual sponsors from the last time um, it raced, uh, such as the, the candy logos are actually there because Greg O'Neill's last sponsor was a candy distributor. But then it's mixed in with all of these references to supporters, friends, family members of Scarpita's that he's lettered in. There's also references to his, his dog, Vito, who's, um, who was a pit bull. You can see a picture of Vito in the case against that wall and also his face here on the, the dog food can. Travis Carr's other significance is that it was through buying this car from Greg O'Neill and becoming really friendly with Greg that Scarpita was able to enter into the world of sprint car racing. And soon after meeting Greg and from his conversations with Greg, he decides to assemble a competitive team and to actually race. And for him, that racing really was an extension of his art. This is something that's hard to explain <laughs> out of context, but I will say that a group of us from the Hirshhorn went out to Lincoln Speedway, which is a racetrack in central Pennsylvania, and it's one of the tracks where Scarpita competed most often. He competed competitively, his team, that is. He wasn't actually the driver, but he was kind of the... Um, sort of like the producer, he's the one who brought all the talent together to the person who would work on the engine, the person who would work on the car and maintain the car, the driver. And he competed for something like 16 years at a very serious level. People involved in sprint car racing might race three nights a week. It's a pretty intense sport. When we went to Lincoln and saw it in person, it, it was very easy to see, to understand how Scarpita saw the poetry in that activity, how he recognized it as fundamentally an art experience, an experience that transcends ordinary life and whose importance was as an expression of human desire more than anything else. There's no function to car racing. You're not getting anywhere when you're doing it. You're doing it for sort of the sheer raw experience and love of it. It's a very short track, and the, the sound is overwhelming. It's very different from being in a, a museum setting. And I think this is one of the things that is a really important accomplishment of Scarpita, that he was challenging us to look at the world differently. And it's when artists do that, that they're able to sort of expand the territory that the next generation of artists can move into. Let's move into the last gallery and look at Scarpita's sleds. So the exhibition ends on this small grouping of Scarpita's sleds. The sleds were works that Scarpita made mostly in the 1970s, but he came back to again and again um, in later decades. And they obviously echo some of the themes of the cars in this uh, association with movement and travel, but it's a very different kind of motion. The sled is, of course, um, one of the most primitive 
modes of transportation. It's very closely related to travel by foot. It evokes a kind of um, images of sort of nomadic, perhaps solitary wandering. So this kind of meandering, searching motion as opposed to the loud, roaring, circular speed of the track. Uh, to me, it very much feels like uh, perhaps a, a metaphor for the kind of searching that one does, that an artist does in studio. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he moves to the sleds after this intense period of working on cars. Because when he worked on the cars, he had to depend on a huge number of people who assisted him, not just in fabricating, but also in sourcing car parts and sort of researching how things worked and fit together. With the sleds, he talked about it as an opportunity for him to be alone in his studio, sort of creating something with his own two hands. And there's a lot of handwork in these. You can see the sort of echo of those very early paintings at the beginning of the show in all of the wrapping that happens in these works. These works are also, it's, it's interesting to know that the works are made from found objects. They're basically almost entirely made from objects that he picked up off the street. At this time, he, in the 70s, he has a studio in downtown Manhattan. And if you look carefully, you start being able to discern beneath that wrapping some recognizable elements like hockey sticks or a, a section of stepladder. In other works, you can see he's using pieces of furniture. He's, using, he's even using things, uh, one of his studio assistants told me that he, he used old Christmas trees that had been thrown out on the street and he carved them down and used that wood. So there's absolute, I think this is the other thing that makes you think of them almost as, as, as artifacts is um, there's this real human resourcefulness at play. This not just made just by one man with his two hands but kind of sourced entirely by a, a single human being. The other notable found object in here that I should mention is the what looks like an artist canvas. That's the backdrop for this piece called Snowshoe Sled. He often um, went to a army surplus uh, depot in Maryland, actually. He taught at MICA in Baltimore for many years. So he got into the habit of going to this uh, surplus place in Maryland, and apparently this is where he found these drapes. These are not artist canvas, these are actually um, medical drapes that Scarpita always explained as being used in childbirth. I think they probably were also um, more often perhaps uh, used in surgery. So I think there's a reference here to a passage of between stages of life, whether it's about a, a baby entering the world for the first time, or whether, again, it's about that sort of opening up of a human body. And I also think it's not a coincidence that one of the very last sculptures that Scarpita made, he chose to return to the motif of the sled. So this is a work called Cotton Lockstep Two, that is one of the last works that he made. It's a work that Elements of it existed as early as the 1980s, but he returned to in 2000 um, with the help of an assistant to finish it. And he was not in great health at this time. Like I said, he, he needed the assistance of another person to, to complete this. But what inspired him was when he was driving between Maryland and Pennsylvania with his daughter, 
they saw a roadside billboard that had been hit by lightning. And he, apparently he just you know, said, stop the car, I have to get this thing. And the charred remains of that sign is what he used as the cargo for this sled. The tow guards at the back, I think, suggest that there's somebody who's riding this sled into an, an unknown territory. To me, it very much echoes images from ancient Egyptian art of the funerary sledge that's bringing somebody into the afterlife. And again, I mean, throughout his entire career, as you've seen, I think there is um, a preoccupation with mortality, but uh, this piece in particular, I think, uh, really speaks to that. So I'm happy to say that this work is now in due to the generosity of the artist family, is now in the collection of our museum. And I'm, as always, extremely grateful to them for that, uh, as well as the other works by Scarpita that we managed to acquire recently. And uh, thank you again for coming.